This podcast is brought to you by Blackbee Ministries International. To find out more, visit blackbee.org. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Richard Blackaby Leadership Podcast, helping take your leadership to the next level. My name is Sam, and I'm joined by the man who thinks puns <laughs> are a, a legitimate form of humor, Richard Blackaby. That's, uh, and they're not? Yeah, well, you know. <clears throat> we'll have to have this conversation offline, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll toss it over to the audience if you guys want to jump in on this. Uh, Richard is very fond of, of yeah. puns and... Uh, most uh, thinking individuals, I would say, are not. Um, although I will say there have been, uh, been a few. There's been a couple think, yeah. that, that you know I can you know tip my hat to, but uh, otherwise uh, not so much. But um, we are not here to talk about puns. No. We're we're gonna do the uh, segment of the show or the type of episode that so many of our listeners enjoy, and that is looking at uh, a leadership profile. Yeah. And biographies. So, biographies. Something that Richard is very fond of. And mm-hmm. if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you know that. He has a he has a whole uh, shelf or two in his library dedicated to biographies of great leaders around the world throughout history. And uh, today we're going way back. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, tell us who we're looking at today, Richard. I thought it was time that uh, if we're going to do a leadership podcast that we get to Julius Caesar. Oh, yes. So. Classic. So why Julius Caesar? What did, what uh, what has he done that, that we should be aware of and that merits a podcast on leadership about him? Well, you know, there are certain leaders, uh, especially military political leaders, that just kind of stand out as... Uh, key uh, milestone kind of leaders. You think of Alexander the Great. You mm-hmm. think of Napoleon. Right. There's just certain leaders that so dominated their age that uh, uh, they just rose head and shoulders above the rest. And uh, and Caesar is certainly one of those. Um, and of course, he, he comes to the apex of the Roman Empire, which is the biggest, most powerful empire in the world. Right. Um, and so to outmaneuver all kinds of leaders and politicians and generals uh, to stand head and shoulders above all of them it was quite a feat. And of course, uh, he will basically uh, overcome the Roman Senate and then uh, his adopted nephew, Octavius, will uh, Octavian will end up uh, becoming the first truly Roman emperor who changes his name to uh, Augustus. And so... Uh, so he, uh, there's a lot about Caesar that, um, is, um, fascinating to people. And, uh, one, one of the issues with Caesar is just that it raises the issue of, um, number one, ambition, uh, ambition. Is it, is it wrong to be ambitious? Is it wrong to, mm. uh, strive to make a name for yourself, uh, to, right. uh, to accomplish great things, uh, some would argue that much of history has been built around ambitious people that wanted to solve a problem for society or to make a name for themselves or to be a hero, a savior of the day. Uh, and Caesar's one of those guys uh, in his in that era, of course, the Roman Senate uh, ruled uh, the empire and uh, you had a couple hundred senators. Typically, they all came from noble families, uh, the aristocrats, uh, the moneyed families that ruled, uh, they owned land and property and, uh, were typically quite conservative. 
Uh, and uh, but, but at the same time, uh, one of the challenges for Rome was that when, when Rome was established, it was not a real large territory to begin with. And so you could have a democracy and uh, people could have their say and it was a nice system that uh, was easy to manage for the most part. Mm-hmm. And uh, they tried to avoid just having one king. So anyone who knows their Roman history knows that you actually had two consuls. So you didn't just have one top executive. You had two that, with the idea that if one got a little too ambitious, the other one could kind of balance them out right. and uh, countermand their orders or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, and so even when it meant to like leading an army, the consuls would take turns leading the army. So uh, you just hoped that the better general was in charge on the battle day. But yeah. um, and then but they only could serve for. I think like two years or so, and then they were, they rotated out. So you, uh, there was all kinds of checks and balances so that nobody could just uh, take over, become a dictator. And for hundreds of years, that system had worked pretty well. But of course, as Rome keeps on conquering more and more territory, they need more and more soldiers, uh, legions to control all this territory. And so you're hiring greater and greater numbers of soldiers and putting them out on all the frontiers. Um, and then, of course, those soldiers retire and they expect to get a pension. And that's costing a lot of money. And uh, and all of a sudden you've got thousands of, of veterans who are all expecting you to take care of them. And, yeah. uh, and, and it began to create all kinds of strains on... Uh, on the empire that they hadn't counted on. And, uh, and, and so people would, you know, it's interesting because when the United States was being established, the going philosophy was that the U S was too big territorially for a democracy Hmm. that there's just no way that a democracy could vote on things and, and run things. You'd, You'd had to have someone more powerful to do that. And there were, a lot of philosophers who said it's just impossible to establish a democracy in a country that big. Uh, and, and part of that was taken from looking at Rome and saying, well, as Rome got bigger, it just got harder and harder to, for a democracy to work. And so, uh, when you look at, when you look at what Caesar does, he, he, uh, ultimately rises above all kinds of very ambitious, uh, men, particularly, uh, he goes and, and spends nine years as the governor over the province of Gaul, which is basically modern-day France, uh, ends up commanding over 10 legions, conquers all kinds of, um, of people. They, they, I mean, there's all kinds of statistics about what he ultimately did, uh, uh, battling over 3 million enemy soldiers, killing a million of them, imprisoning wow. another million of them, uh, conquering over 800 cities, uh, I mean, just enormous. He, he he took he actually led an amphibious landing of Great Britain, and actually went all the way to England and to the Thames River. Uh, I mean, he was just very ambitious. Uh, fought a lot of very difficult battles. Uh, had a race all over modern day France, all the way into Germany, across the Rhine River, across the the English Channel. Wow. Um, and, uh, and he just accomplished a lot of amazing things. He'd get to a, a raging, like the Rhine River, and have to figure out how do we get across this thing. We've got enemy soldiers on the other side wanting to kill us. And, uh, and he'd figure out how to, to engineer a bridge uh, large enough to, to 
bring a whole army across. And uh, he was just always uh, adapting and doing whatever he had to. Uh, and of course, he he wrote. Uh, he developed things like the you know the Julian calendar. He he promoted. Uh, he's always learning, uh, and uh, he's he's facing all kinds of intrigues. But uh, uh, the Senate is constantly worried about him. But uh, he manages to outmaneuver them until finally the Ides of March catch up with him. Uh, But he just does all kinds of interesting things. Uh, When he was about uh, just a young man, uh, another uh, dictator named Sulla is uh, going around killing off a bunch of people just like him. And uh, it's miraculous that he survived. He should have been been purged and killed. Hmm. At one point, he's uh, traveling in the Mediterranean, and he's captured by pirates. And, and in that day, the, the pirates just sort of terrorized all the Mediterranean. They were out of control. And uh, so they were going to, they, they, they realized we've caught a noble here. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll hold him for ransom. And they demanded 26 talents uh, to, to, for his freedom. And Caesar, I guess, typical of his arrogance and confidence, he said 26 talents was way too cheap for him. He was worth a lot more than that. <laughs> he told the pirates. Yeah, he told the pirates, you're asking for way too little for me. You should be asking for 50 talents of silver or, or gold, whatever. And uh, and so he they put into shore, and he's actually going to some noble family. He's, he's like collecting the ransom and finally gets collects 50, helps to collect the 50 talents so that they release him. And uh, so as soon as he gets released, he hires and basically rents a, a, a private navy of his own and goes after the pirates and uh, takes back the- and actually <laughs> captures the pirates, arrests them, and uh, ultimately crucif- has them crucified and gets uh, all the booty back. There's wow. no, uh, no record that he gave the 50 talents back to the people that paid it in the first place. But yeah. Uh, but it was that kind of uh, bravado uh, yeah. that he um, became famous for. And, uh, of course, it's, there's an interesting story. When he was in Spain, when he was about 31, 32 years old or so, he uh, came across a famous statue of Alexander the Great. And uh, and it was celebrating the fact that by the age of 31 or so, Alexander had already conquered the known world. At that time... Uh, Caesar has not really begun a lot of his exploits yet, and he wept. Uh, Caesar just wept because when Alexander was his age, he'd conquered the known world, and here Caesar is still just trying to kind of find his way. And uh, and it, it's always a kind of an, an irony of history that two of the most ambitious people in the certainly in the ancient ancient world were were challenging one another uh, certainly caesar yeah. felt challenged by alexander to to say well what can i what great thing can i do hmm. and uh, so very interesting in that regard a lot a lot of a lot of things that caesar did that just showed his brilliance and uh, courage and uh, ingenuity yeah so with him as a leader what what are some takeaways that that we that we find in his Biography. Well, as a leader, they say that he, uh, one thing is he studied oratory. He, I mean, he learned how to speak well. Hmm. And uh, he, he was trained as a, as a lawyer. He argued cases in the courts. Uh, he could make great speeches uh, to his men. And people just said that he spoke very well, but, but he actually trained to do that. He actually, he, he actually traveled to Greece and took classes in mm-hmm. rhetoric uh, so that he would be a good communicator. Well, you know, we've talked about that before on the podcast that uh, 
the the importance of communication yeah. as a leader. It, and not, don't assume if you're not that good at it that you can't you can't improve. Yeah. Uh, Here we have Julius Caesar who yeah. presumably wasn't good at it. Goes and takes naturally. classes in yeah. Greece. Uh, and uh, they said he, he was always writing. Of course, this is obviously way before internet and so on or even telephones, but he was constantly writing letters all the time. In fact, yeah. they said he was so driven that uh, he could uh, he could dictate four letters at the same time. So he'd have four different assistant scribes, and he'd be dictating four different letters simultaneously, which tells wow. you something about <laughs> Caesar and what he could do and how he could be getting so many things done. Yeah, and, well, if I had four scribes, I could Yeah, maybe. I, <laughs> uh, and he... Um, uh, and, and so he was, he also just had uh, a very strong communication line so that even when he's over in Gaul, he always has people keeping him informed of what's happening back in Rome. And he's always sending messages back and keeping up with people because of course, if you're a general, uh, serving out of the country, all kinds of things could be happening back in the, the center of the world right. in Rome that you're losing control of. And so he always knew what was going on always let people know what he thought and had his lieutenants and uh, he would actually uh, pay money be very gen- as he's conquering all these tribes in Gaul and conquering these different kingdoms he came across a lot of loot a lot of booty he tried to make sure his soldiers all got paid well for putting their life on the line for him but yeah. uh, but he also would take lots of this money and then he would pay off friends and allies back in Rome so that even though he was away there were people that were quite loyal to him to watch out for his interests hmm. but they said he also like like Napoleon and others uh, uh, that he always was very meticulous about taking care of his soldiers made sure that they had enough to eat and drink and uh, warm clothes to to wear in the winter and so on and uh, yeah. he showed a, a, a definite uh, concern personally for how soldiers were doing uh, it was said that he shared in all of his soldiers' uh, dangers and uh, privations. Uh, oftentimes, he'd be, you know, he could have been carried along in a chariot or a, some kind of cart. Oftentimes, he just walked along with his soldiers. Uh, and in many of the battles, um, he would, when his soldiers were were growing faint and discouraged, uh, or starting to retreat. Uh, there's a number of stories where Caesar would charge to the front of the line. At one point, they're fighting a bunch of these uh, huge uh, German soldiers, these barbarians, and they're quite fierce-looking uh, and acting and sounding. And his uh, some of his uh, Roman soldiers were getting a little intimidated. Yeah. And so here goes uh, Caesar, and he goes charging right to the front of the line, and he's actually hollering out at his uh, centurions uh, by name, saying, "Come on, get your men up here. Come on with me. You know, we can take these." And uh, that kind of heroism, of course, won him a great loyalty from his soldiers. Certainly. Um, and they just said that that uh, Caesar exuded confidence. And, of course, when you – and he, he didn't win every battle, but uh, he he developed this aura of success. And now you could – there were a couple of times when he lost battles, when he was uh, outmaneuvered or caught by surprise and, and – uh, and uh, but for the most part, when you were around him, you just assumed you're going to win. Yeah. And you might you might have a setback, but you knew you're ultimately if you if you kind of hitched your wagon to him, you're going to win. And of course, he developed a track record of success. And just few things give leaders more influence than a track record of of success. Absolutely. Uh, they said that uh, maybe one or two other things. They said that he um, uh, 
They said he did, he never just issued commands. Uh, he had a way of convincing people. And so it's one thing to say, hey, take, that, take that fortress up there. Uh, you could order people to do that. But he would convince people that they could do it and they should do it. And that was a that was a world of difference in leadership between barking out an order, do that because I said so, and actually convincing your men that they. I mean, could I think that is that is a profound difference. Yeah. In in leadership styles, to to order someone just because you say so, and then to to show your the people that you're leading why it is that you can and should and will. Yeah do whatever it is that, that, that you have in mind for them. And of course, a lot of leaders just, they're impatient. It's like, well, I don't have time to explain everything. Like you don't need to know, just obey. But uh, it takes patience and an investment in your people. But but of course, that's a higher level of leadership. You also have a greater loyalty to you. And uh, these soldiers ultimately would, uh, would, would travel the world fighting on his behalf. One, one other thing that he did was uh, he had what they called a, a policy of clemency for the most part. Certainly when he, he finally crossed the Rubicon and he went down into Italy and basically launched a civil war, uh, he very in, in the past, when, when other kind of dictators and usurpers had done that, uh, if you came into Rome, uh, people before him, uh, there had been a couple of occasions where others had done a similar thing. Uh, but what you would do is you basically would kill off your opponents, especially if they're Roman senators. And you couldn't just kill off the Roman senator. You had to then kill off all of his kids who'd want to get revenge on you. And so basically there was bloodbaths. Uh, and if you were on the wrong side, you had to leave Rome because you knew you'd, they, they would literally post lists of, of names saying these, all these people are on our prescribed list. So if you find them, kill them and bring their bodies or at least their heads uh, here and will to, to confirm they're dead. And so there'd be, of course, mass exoduses if, yeah. if, but, but Caesar basically just said, and if you're a a prime conspirator, one of the the prime enemies, you're probably going to end up dead. But, uh, if you just chose the wrong side and, (laughs) and you've been beaten in battle, um, he tended to just show a lot of, uh, clemency and forgiveness and, of course, that, in fact, a lot of soldiers ended up joining his army then. And say, he, he would say, well, we beat you, but hey, we need more uh, good men. Why don't you join our army? And so that kind of helped fill his ranks and mm. instead of just because he was fighting constant warfare for 15 or so years. And yeah. so um, he would have depleted his armies significantly if he had not had that policy. But uh, so in one way, it, it, it gave him a number of friends. Ironically, uh, it'll be uh, senators that he didn't have killed that ultimately will assassinate him. So he left enemies around. Uh, he could have still, we could talk more about that, he probably could have still avoided being killed if he hadn't been so arrogant. Yeah. But uh, but he, he um, it's one of those philosophies where you say, look, at if you if you grind your enemies to dust, you, you don't have to worry so much about them coming back to get you, But uh, but you're going to create when your enemies have a chance, they're going to do the same to you. And, uh, and, uh, Caesar had a certain amount of almost arrogance to say, I don't have to kill you. I'm, I'm so superior to you. I beat you so handily. I just am pretty confident that you're, you're not stupid. You'll, you'll know it's better to join me than to keep fighting me. Hmm. And so it was an, it part, it was part arrogance, part, uh, brilliant strategy, uh, to say, you know, if I just, if I just, 
winner take all, then uh, that's how my enemies will fight against mm. me as well. Interesting. And uh, so it, it it's it worked for him right up until for, the end. Until it, <laughs> it worked until it didn't. Yes. Well, I think this is a good place to uh, take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Whether at home, on the job, or in the ministry, we can all have a greater impact on the world around us for the kingdom of God. Join Richard Blackaby at the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove to learn about increasing your spiritual influence on April 6th through the 8th, 2020. Space is limited, so register soon at the link in the show notes. If you like what we're doing and would like to support our work, please consider making a donation. Even a little bit will go a long way toward keeping this podcast going for the months and years to come. To support this podcast, click on the link in the show notes. We are truly grateful for our wonderful community of listeners. Well, Richard, as we know, any great leader is going to have some weaknesses, and uh, Julius Caesar is no exception to that uh, rule. So maybe you can share with us uh, before we go, uh, what are some some blind spots perhaps and weaknesses in Julius Caesar that, that we can perhaps apply to our own life and, and look for? Yeah, and uh, by the way, I should just say uh, the, the, the biography I, I base this out of is uh, called Caesar by Christian May- Meyer. And uh, it was, it's a little older. It was written, I think, in like, the early uh, 1980s, but uh, uh, very scholarly, thorough work. And uh, uh, when you're writing it 2,000 years after the fact, uh, not a lot of new stuff happens in exactly. a decade or so. But a couple of things about Caesar. One, of course, uh, he was a great, he became a great orator. He he exuded confidence uh, and, and physically was uh, quite strong and uh, able to live out on the field with the soldiers and fight all kinds of battles. Uh, he wasn't just sitting back on some mountaintop or you know hilltop looking from afar through eyeglasses what his soldiers were doing. He sure. was right down in there. But interestingly, uh, and of course it's hard looking back 2,000 years, but um, a lot of experts believe that uh, he may well have uh, actually struggled with epilepsy hmm. and that there were times when he actually had, would have seizures. And, uh, and there was at least a couple of times where he sort of went almost missing and it was very unlike him. Uh, a couple of times where he just wasn't himself or wasn't able to lead, at least one case where they thought someone dressed up like him was kind of charging into battle, but but it may have been someone trying to just fill in for him while he was indisposed. And so, huh. interestingly, if one of the greatest soldiers in ancient times was an epileptic uh, and actually had some times where he'd be overcome. Wow. There's a lot of speculation about that, but it seems like that that may have been the case with him, um, which is, of course, you know, we always talk about this, uh, that even the greatest of leaders have their feet of clay, their, their physical ailments or personal, emotional struggles that they have to overcome, the demons right. they have to overcome. Um, that's a, yeah, that's not unique to any leader. And uh, it would be easy to say, well, I've got this uh, physical malady. I, I can't be a soldier. I can't do this. Uh, Caesar obviously managed to overcome that. Yeah. He was, uh, we said he's very ambitious. And one of the, uh, of course, one of the things he actually says, which is kind of interesting when he's at the, uh, when he's, he's there at the, uh, at the Rubicon, he said uh, to refrain from crossing uh, will bring me misfortune. Uh, but to cross will bring misfortune to all men. Uh, and of course he's, so his, his ambition says, if I never cross this river, I'll, I'll, I'll never get what I could have gotten, become what I could have become. But 
if I do cross the river, there's probably a lot of soldiers are going to die. Uh, and, uh, and of course, one of the big historic debates about ambition is, when, is ambition wrong if, it's, if it may affect other people as well, uh, either for good or for bad? But yeah. uh, if you strive uh, to get all you can or to get to the top uh, uh, or to make your company the number one in its market, uh, what will that do to other companies? Will that cause other companies to go bankrupt and to lay people off? And, you know, so there's always a... There's, it's always a double-edged sword there in terms of ambition. Yeah. Well, I imagine there's also, you know, I think we would all agree that there's a difference between this sort of personal ambition of, you know, I want to be a known person. I want to leave my mark uh, on the world, you know, make my name great versus, you know, I want to just, you know, I feel like we can fix this issue in humanity or we can you know, overcome this problem with my company or what have you that I feel like maybe there's a way to, to yeah. say there's, there's ambition that is less self-centered right. and ambition that is right. more self-centered. Yeah. Cause I think about, I know, I'm sure that there are scientists and, and doctors that have the ambition of being the person who cures cancer. Yeah. And I'd say, well, good for you. <laughs> I give you all the fame and yeah. glory that you want. Yeah, if you could do something like that, that would benefit so many other people. Uh, but yeah, I, and I think for most leaders at times they have to kind of think that through to say, well, is my ambition a noble thing? Is it something I should yeah. be ashamed of? Is it, is my ambition leading me to step on people, to use people? Uh, and, and that was always a, a question for Caesar was, am I using my soldiers? Uh, in fact, his biographer says he often concealed the fact how much he depended upon his soldiers, uh, and and so he tried to take care of them. He he shared booty with them. Now he when they were invading Italy, he really uh, prevented his soldiers from uh, spoiling fellow Romans the way he would have let them do that in Gaul. And his soldiers got a little frustrated that there wasn't more loot for them because that was yeah. kind of their payback. Uh, and so they had to, they began asking him, "Well, are we just putting our life on the line so you can become?" the dictator for life of Rome, or is this what's in it for us? And of course, Napoleon faced that too. Uh, a lot of people died so that he could become famous. And uh, But there's uh, several other things about Caesar. Uh, he, his biographer calls him an outsider. Even though he came from a very long, uh, uh, an old uh, aristocratic family, they weren't that successful. They, they didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And so he was kind of a second rate aristocrat. <laughs> and so, and he was kind of viewed that way often. And so he never uh, fit in and he was never really accepted. And he knew that. And he didn't necessarily want to be accepted in one sense. That's partly what a lot of people have said. Sometimes outsiders have an advantage because they're not constrained by doing things the way it's always been done right and uh trying to not upset all your friends you know if you don't have friends you don't worry about upsetting (laughs) them and and so there's no really record of him having a close friend which is sort of interesting yeah um and you know there's of course there's things uh he he divorced a couple of wives uh he at least one he was married a couple of times uh he um uh, he would have affairs. In fact, one of his, his, it was said his favorite mistress was actually the mother of Brutus. 
and of A2 Brute fame. And so, it, you know, there's always these little ironies in history. So here's Brutus, he thinks is his friend, who stabs him and actually leads uh, the assassination attempt. But some people have speculated that, well, maybe part of why Brutus did that was this guy's messing around with my mother. And, yeah, uh, I, I could see that being uh, and so, you know, driving it, force. History is not always just as clean cut as sometimes yeah. short by, uh, uh, history books make it seem like. Uh, and he and he um, and there was a power vacuum. And this is something that's interesting. Uh, again, the, the, the Senate had been around a long time, but. Uh, but the, but the the senators were were getting weak. They they didn't want to address the difficult questions. Uh, they didn't want to, to pay the price that was involved uh, to make things right. Uh, and so, whenever there's a power vacuum, when people don't lead, there's always a Julius Caesar or a Napoleon who are are prepared to step into the gap. Yeah. Uh, and you know it's interesting. You can kind of see that even to this day, even in American politics. The outsider who comes in, who wants, and, and right now we've got one that wants to clean the swamp. And, uh, you know, there's a certain appeal to a certain uh, segment of society. It, yeah. it, but it also causes a lot of people to hate you and be against you. And certainly the Senate was against uh, Julius Caesar and saw him as a usurper, a, a betrayer of his class, and uh, people didn't trust him. But but nobody seemed to be able to rise up as a leader to stand up against them, and 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 there was the the system was breaking down in the Roman Senate, but uh, nobody seemed to be able to fix it, yeah. and uh, and oftentimes there's just too much vested interest in a system, even when it's broken, that the, people just keep putting up with a broken system that is not functioning right, and. Uh, You've got all these soldiers that have no land, and no, and, and Rome is filling up with homeless, uh, poor people that have nothing to eat, and the government is not able to address that, and and so they finally look to a strong man like uh, Caesar to say, well, he's he'll come in and make the tough calls, and and that's essentially what Caesar did. He would make try to pass laws and decrees that would provide food for people and give land to veteran soldiers and. Uh, he'd appeal to the to the populace uh, and not just go through all the established channels of the Senate and government. And so interesting, um, uh, maybe just one last uh, quote just to give you, that I, I kind of find interesting. Uh, it's um, by uh, a, a person called uh, uh, Jacob Burkhart. It says, great men are necessary for our life in order that uh, the movement of world history can flow, uh, free itself sporadically by fits and starts from obsolete ways of living and inconsequential talk. And, of course, there's a great man theory that uh, a lot of people don't like anymore and think it's kind of a dated view of history, but but there, there are certain characters throughout history that come along and then history is never the same after that. And yeah. the way of doing government or... Uh, or business or whatever else, it, it, you can't do it the same after that. And Caesar's one of those guys who came at a broken time in Roman history, and uh, a lot of people accuse him of breaking it, but the fact is uh, it wasn't healthy anymore. It wasn't working right. And and there seems like there's always a Julius Caesar-type person that mm. will arise on the scene when things are broken and weak and ineffective to... and. Uh, 
and you almost see that in just about every generation where that happens. And so for better or worse, he's one of those towering figures of world history that you look at and you're not sure how much he was a symptom of the problem or the cause of the problem. But uh, you certainly look back at human history and say, well, it was never the same after he appeared on the scene. Well, a fascinating uh, biography, a fascinating leader. And uh, we'll leave links to the sh- in the show notes uh, for the biography that Richard used for this. And uh, speaking of links in the show notes, we're also going to leave a link to our next book club book, our leadership book. Uh, Richard, why don't you tell us real quickly yeah. uh, what book we're going to be we're doing? We're going to be uh, reading Angela Duckworth's book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance. All right. So look for that. Uh, we'll probably do that uh, actually next week, maybe. So uh, be... Uh, Grab your copy and uh, read along with us. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If this is something you enjoyed, it really makes a difference if you leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We always love hearing from our listeners. So email us at podcast at blackv.org.